0: We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, we've been hearing a lot of concern about elderly in our care homes and the push for more transparency when it comes to the reporting of COVID cases across our state. Keith Ridley is the Director of Healthcare Assurance for the Department of Health. He oversees a segment of our community that cares for our kapuna in medical and community facilities.
1: It's so important to take mom or grandma or whoever to a a licensed facility for the care uh, because it's only under those situations are we able or is the Department of Health and the state able to ensure at least a, a minimum level of meeting standards and qualifications for providing care in a residential setting. We go through a very rigorous application process for anyone who's applying for a license, uh, and that includes currently the, you know, the very important infection control kinds of things to ensure that the operator, the caregiver, has an infection control plan and that they have other qualifications to provide quality care to individuals. So it's very important that anyone who's seeking care for a loved one or a friend go to a licensed uh, care facility.
0: Those licensed facilities are under your jurisdiction and you can inspect them?
1: We inspect them uh, every year, at least once a year. Uh, so, so that's very important, number one. And, and understanding the basis for the license is actually why I'm saying that I have a, a good feeling uh, for uh, the residential care facilities and all the licensed facilities in general uh, because of the licensing process that we go through and the inspection process that we go through. It's a very important part of ensuring a quality of care and safety to the public. Sometimes an operator might be asked by someone who's looking for a home, are you licensed? And they might, be, they might respond yes by responding that they have a, uh, you know, with the knowledge that they have a tax license or GET license. Not the same thing uh, as a license to operate a care facility from the Department of Health. So it's very important for the public to ask that kind of a specific question. Are you licensed by the Department of Health to provide care uh, in in your setting? So if someone does have a loved one uh, in an unlicensed home, they just need to make the decision on whether they want to keep, that, uh, keep their loved one in that unlicensed home uh, without anyone checking on quality of care or safety, uh, or if they want to move their loved one to a licensed care home. We do have uh, a list of licensed care homes on the Department of Health website. They can refer to that list uh, if they need to see if there's a licensed care home in whatever geographic area they're looking for.
0: And do you have any information about any uh, outbreaks or clusters in these smaller care homes, the licensed ones even at this point?
1: No, I don't have anything more than what already been published in in the local media.
0: There's more transparency. Some states will actually list everything from mushroom farms to care homes to, you know, wherever the positive cases are or the outbreaks are. But we don't do that. Well, why is that?
1: Well, we're very concerned about confidentiality of the patients in the homes. Um, and in some, in some situations, in some cases, uh, there may be very few homes in a particular area uh, or certainly, if we were to name a specific residential care home, it's very easy to be able to identify who the patients are in those homes. So, from a confidentiality standpoint for the uh, for the patients mostly uh, is the reason why we don't do that.
0: I understand the privacy concerns, but this is such an unusual time that you just want to have more information about where these clusters are, or, where these positive cases are turning up?
1: I think what's very important is that uh, we're in contact uh, with the operator that home, with the licensee, and with the workers and the residents in, in a particular home so that they're aware uh, that they are uh, immediately taking steps to do whatever they need to to ensure the continued safety of those who are negative uh, in those homes, uh, that any positive patient uh, or caregiver is isolated or quarantined to prevent or to minimize any additional spread of COVID. Other than that, uh, you know, that really becomes the the focus of our attention is to minimize that spread. Many of the residential care homes are currently not allowing visitors or or have very strict standards uh, as far as allowing visitors into their homes. And these are not the kinds of of facilities that are just open to the public and so someone needs uh, needs to know ahead of time not to go into that home. These are, these are private homes and so they're not like a hospital or like a mushroom farm or a flower nursery or a retail store where there are positive cases and, and so the public in general would need to be aware of, of uh, which specific homes have a positive case.
0: Well, I'm just thinking too in the instance where maybe a family member might want to take their loved one out of a care facility because they're afraid that they might come down with COVID.
1: Well, again, that's and that's why our contact with the operator and with the patients or what we call residents. Uh, of those care homes uh, are all contacted so they know what's going on uh, if any of those individuals in the homes have a uh, legal representative or some other representative who doesn't live in the home whether it's a power of attorney uh, who might be a child or a grandchild or a nephew or niece or friend or whomever then those individuals are contacted as well so that they, uh, they know uh, what the circumstances are in those homes
0: is there anything that you can share with us about the state of PPE and getting some of that that protective equipment out to the, the smaller care homes?
1: The availability of PPE, first of all, has improved uh, significantly uh, since the early start of the, of the pandemic when uh, PPE became quickly uh, in short supply or, or even non-existence in some situations. So there have been a lot of PPE then brought into the state by HIMA and through the Department of Health through other programs and organizations and that PPE is available to facilities uh, that need that PPE. Initially we were looking mostly at the larger facilities like the hospitals and skilled nursing facilities where they have a lot of people going in and out of those facilities, whether it's patients or workers or what have you. And the uh, smaller facilities, the smaller care homes uh, don't have that kind of turnover. So they had a, a more difficult time uh, trying to get uh, the limited supplies of PPE. Since then, it has improved. We have developed a system uh, that allows the, the smaller care homes to obtain PPE, and we are also in the process, uh, we, the Department of Health, are in a process of working with the Hawaii Department of Defense uh, and HAIMA to order and to distribute more PPE through the remainder of the calendar year. That process is just the beginning stages where we've identified the amount of PPE and the various types of PPE that will be needed. And uh, from this stage, the Hawaii Department of Health, uh, Department of Defense, will be working with other agencies to order the PPE and then creating some sort of a distribution system to various facilities statewide.
0: I know we were hearing about, you know, the need for N95 masks, but do you have a handle on whether, They've got those supplies out to those homes.
1: Well, we've identified, uh, you know, again as I mentioned, this uh, this effort to order more and distribute more. These include N95 masks, uh, but they also include more of the surgical masks, which are the the more the higher demand mask. the n ninety five mask isn't really necessary unless there are uh, you're dealing with a, with a, a resident or a person, a patient who is positive. And the Department of Health is uh, informed by labs whenever there is a positive test. And the labs inform us of of uh, who the patient was is, uh, and the Department of Health immediately contacts the patient, if this person is in a licensed nursing facility, we'll work with the, the operator of the facility and contact whichever other uh, patients might be involved or workers might be involved with that care facility. Uh, so that's certainly one strike team uh, that we have that does this on a, on a regular basis. Other teams that had been created were swab teams, you know, where teams would go out and and conduct tests. But with the increase in the amount of testing that's available, I think we've probably not had so much emphasis on the need for those swab teams.
0: Dr. Scott Miskovich of Premier Medical talked about those machines that they were looking at, they were going through the FDA review, Cadell machines. Are you familiar with those at all?
1: I know that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recently announced that they intend to distribute one of a couple of types of device testing devices to skilled nursing facilities. They're focusing immediately on those geographic areas that are
0: hotspots, but
1: their, their announcement said that they intended to distribute these devices to all skilled nursing facilities nationwide by the end of September. So there is a good chance that uh, Hawaii will get some, but it's just that we won't get them right away.
0: All right. Anything else that you think would be important to underscore?
1: Again, uh, ensuring that uh, people know the difference between an unlicensed care home and a licensed care home. The Department of Health not only is very detailed in providing initial licensing screening of, of applicants for licenses, but also on an annual basis, we go in and we re-inspect the facilities to make sure that they continue to be in compliance uh, with licensing requirements. And we continue, even during COVID, uh, going out to the licensed care homes to make sure that they are in fact uh, exercising the kinds of universal infection control protocols that are so vitally important to help prevent or minimize the spread of COVID.
0: And how did you ever resolve the whole thing about the booties and the inspectors? It sort
1: of became a non-issue. We certainly uh, did change the behavior of our uh, inspectors where uh, they would either change shoes uh, if they had a a second pair of shoes when they got to the home uh, or uh, the homes uh, would provide booties to the inspectors.
0: So that just sort of resolved itself. I did not uh, I, I did not get a chance to watch the uh, briefing that you folks had under Mizuno's committee. Did anything major come out of that as far as like even funding or you know anything to help you folks?
1: I think it just gave everyone a better understanding of uh, what testing protocols there are, for example, and what are expected from uh, licensed and certified healthcare facilities.
0: Are you aware of any positives in an unlicensed facility?
1: I am not aware of any, and I I feel very certain that if there was anyone in an unlicensed home that I'd learn about it pretty quickly, and I haven't heard of any.
0: That was State Department of Health's Keith Ridley talking about taking care of our elderly in the thousands of care homes across the state during these COVID-19 times. And now it's time to check in with the BBC with the latest COVID news. One of the world's most populated countries – becomes the third to exceed one million COVID cases, and a 100-year-old philanthropist becomes Britain's newest knight.
2: This is the coronavirus global update on Friday, the 17th of July. I'm Valerie Sanderson. As Brazil records 2 million cases of the virus, India becomes the third country in the world to surpass more than 1 million cases. EU leaders have warned of the difficult task ahead as they try to agree a huge COVID-19 stimulus package. And a hundred-year-old Captain Tom Moore, who raised millions of dollars for charity during the pandemic, is knighted by Queen Elizabeth. There have now been more than 1 million confirmed cases in India and 2 million in Brazil. The total in both countries has doubled in less than a month. Despite an increase in daily infections, the death rate in Brazil is largely flat. But in India, the number of people dying with COVID-19 each day is increasing. Until now, big cities like Delhi and Mumbai have been the worst affected. Now, more rural areas in the south, east and west of the country are seeing significant rises. India went into a nationwide lockdown in March when there were just a few hundred cases. It was lifted last month. But some medics, like Dr. Harjit Singh Bhatti from Delhi's Manipal Hospital, say that was a mistake.
3: The reopening of lockdown is also a major cause for it because first thing is that the lockdown period was not used appropriately for breaking the chain of transmission. And secondly, the lockdown was reopened without any further planning to how to control the virus.
2: In Brazil, a thousand deaths have been recorded daily since late May. A former health minister has compared it to several aeroplanes packed with Brazilians crashing every day for the past seven weeks. Two million people there are known to have caught the virus. One of those infected is President Jair Bolsonaro. But that still hasn't stopped him trying to play it down. He repeated his call for the economy to fully reopen even as he remains in isolation in the presidential palace.
4: We
1: can't go on suffocating the economy. The lack of a salary, the lack of jobs can kill and kills more than the virus itself.
2: European Union leaders have hunkered down in Brussels for a summit to try to agree a huge coronavirus recovery fund. The German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, said differences between members remained large and she couldn't realistically predict agreement this time. The sentiment was echoed by the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen. The stakes couldn't be higher. If we do it right, we can overcome this crisis stronger and
5: emerge stronger from the crisis. All the necessary pieces are on the table and a solution is possible. And the solution, that is what our people in Europe expect from us because it's their jobs that are
2: at stake. Meanwhile, in Britain, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has changed the official advice on going to work in England as the government further relaxes coronavirus restrictions. Instead of urging people to work from home, if possible, employers will have more discretion to ask people to return to the workplace.
6: What we're saying is that where employers decide uh, with their employees that it's safe to come back uh, to work, then people should come back to work, and provided that that can be done in a in a COVID secure way.
2: To China now, where the government has cancelled hundreds of flights in and out of Urumqi, the capital of the far western region of Xinjiang, after detecting new coronavirus infections there. The city has reported 17 confirmed cases of COVID-19, as Stephen McDonald reports.
6: News of a coronavirus cluster in Urumqi only came out today, and already the authorities there are imposing widespread restrictions on people's movements. The underground train system has stopped operating, as of many public buses. On Chinese social media, some people are saying they're now being told not to leave their housing estates.
2: Scientists in the US and Hong Kong have developed a treatment for hard surfaces like door handles, which they believe can help to stop the spread of coronavirus. It involves applying a coating similar to that used to protect wooden floors and then adding a mineral which attacks the virus. Professor William Ducker from Virginia Tech University has been involved in the project.
6: We only invented it like two months ago, so... We don't really know how long it lasts. It definitely lasts two months, but we expect it to last for years. We've checked it with various American standard tests, like slashing it with a razor blade to see whether the coating will peel off. And it does very well in that
4: coating.
2: And finally, Captain Tom Moore, the 100-year-old who became a national hero in Britain by raising millions of dollars for health workers during the pandemic, has become Sir Tom after he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth at Windsor Castle. The World War II veteran raised $40 million by walking 100 laps of his garden with the aid of a walking frame. Good for him and stay safe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
6: The for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Locations and Honolulu Waldorf School. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
0: Hi, I'm Catherine Ann Jones, author of Heal Yourself with Writing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about self-healing through writing and a deeper dialogue with the self.
7: Sunday morning at 11.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
7: Unihua, Ulehua, o Ukaua, <laughs> Ua,
8: Umuloki, Ulanai, Umau, Ukaholawe, U Hawaii.
0: For today's Backyard Quiz, we look at a local-born athlete that went on to have a long career in professional baseball. Standing tall with an imposing 6-foot-3-inch frame, Jerome Williams was a formidable opponent to the batters he faced off against throughout his 13-year career in the majors born on oahu in 1981 the right-handed pitcher of partial hawaiian ancestry attended waipahu high school where he graduated in 1999 after an impressive outing at the inaugural sugar mill classic senior all-star game at hans larange park in waipahu williams was selected only two days later as the 39th overall selection of the 1999 draft He quickly earned a reputation for his sinkers and fastballs, which clocked in upwards of 90 miles per hour. He was affectionately known by his teammates as Puka for the Puka shell necklace he wore. Throughout his career, he played for a number of teams and even had stints in Taiwan, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. Williams retired in 2016 after his final season with the St. Louis Cardinals, walking away from the sport with over 600 strikeouts to his name. But for today's Backyard Quiz, can any baseball buffs out there tell us which team drafted Waipahu's own Jerome Williams into the majors in the first place? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
6: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: The Office of Elections wants your attention as Hawaii is holding its first election by mail next month. Hawaii residents have already begun receiving ballots in the mail. We talked to Elections Officer Scott Nago about the changes to expect this time around.
8: We're getting a lot of calls from seniors actually requesting a ballot because of this pandemic we're in. We have to assure them that they don't have to request a ballot. I mean, Hawaii votes by mail this year. They're going to automatically receive their ballot in the mail. The other thing is, this is not simply because of the pandemic. This is just how we're going to vote from here on out.
0: This was something that was decided like a year ago, right?
8: (laughs) Yeah. It was just fortunate timing on our um, that we had this actually passed the legislature before this whole pandemic hit.
0: What is it that you want to get out as you folks roll out this campaign.
8: We basically want people to know that their ballot is actually coming to them, not something they have to request anymore. Make sure that when they receive their ballot, make sure that they vote it, sign the envelope, and then return it five days prior to election day because the law says it has to be received, not um, postmarked. We're we're recommending that they mail it five days prior to election day so that it received in time to be counted because anything received after the 7 p.m. deadline will not be counted.
0: What about the signature aspect of this?
8: Because It's a vote-by-mail. There are no polling places. There's no way to verify somebody's ID the old-fashioned way where they come in show an ID, and we verify it. Now we're going to verify each signature. So it's important that you sign the envelope, voters sign the envelope so that when their ballot is returned, we can verify the signature on the envelope prior to counting. So if the signature matches, we'll count the ballot. If it doesn't match... Uh, we'll notify the voter and they have five days after the election to actually come in and correct that situation. So we're just trying to hit as many people as possible to let them know that we actually do vote by mail this year. Make sure you do sign your ballot. If you're familiar with the whole um, absentee mail process from last year, there should really be no change to you. It's the people that actually go to the polls. We don't want them going to a polling place this year because A lot of people are so repetitious that they would just automatically go to the same place they've been voting at for years, and we don't want them going to a place that's actually not open. We just want to let people know that we vote by mail this year. Your ballot will come to you starting July 21st.
0: And will there be anything down at City Hall?
8: So starting July 27th, running all the way to 7 p.m. on Election Day, there will be voter service centers on Halle and Kapolei Hale where voters can actually go in at, um, and register if they miss the registration deadline, reg- register and vote as well as um, accessible voting. If they need a replacement ballot, they can pick up a replacement ballot.
0: And how will it work for the neighbor islands?
8: Same thing. They'll have voter service centers throughout the island. I know the County of Hawaii will have one at the West Hawaii Civic Center, as well as the Apuni Op- Center, which is across the street from the county building. The County of Kauai will have one in the administration's conference room. And then Maui will have one at the Velma McQueen Center, as well as on Lanai at the police station and at the... Mitchell Paoli Center on Molokai.
0: So, if people still want to go somewhere, <laughs>
8: yes, they can <laughs> and- still choose to vote in person at one of these locations. We're recommending that you mail your ballot in five days prior to the election date because of the you know the USPS transit time. But if you're going to hold on to your ballot and you want, you're one of those people that like to wait to the very end to vote, um, we don't recommend you drop it in the mail. There'll be places of deposit located around each county or on each island where you can just drop it off and election officials will collect it by 7 p.m. on election day. So you kind of bypass the mail service it'll go directly to an election official.
0: But it's not like you can just go down to Honolulu Halle and pick up a ballot there.
8: I believe you would have to call them up, and it's one of the places, instead of them mailing you a replacement, you can go pick it up.
0: It's a whole new ball game. I mean, you probably won't need all the volunteers that you normally ask for to staff all the polls. No,
8: but it's a different... The focus is different because now we're going to need more people to process the ballots to count because mail is a whole different process where you'd have to open up all the envelopes and process them and count them. And we're going to have to do that centrally now rather than at each polling place.
0: Then you would just feed them, right, into the machine? Correct. It's a different
8: process. I mean, it's not the same thing, but it's it's just different.
0: Now, we did have the registration deadline. Uh, Any sense as to whether we're up, down, about the
4: same?
8: We are actually up um, registration-wise from the last election, last general election. Normally, um, we do either see a slight increase or a slight decline between generals and primaries, but this year we are up, I believe, 5%.
0: Oh, well, that's a good thing.
8: Yeah, and if you did miss the deadline, um, like I said, you can always register in person and vote in person at a voter service center starting July 27th,
0: and I know the deadline for registration was also the day uh, when uh, they had resumed some of the swearing in of our new citizens. So they got their ballots, and and hopefully they they registered in time for that deadline.
8: I think it's important that voters remember to sign their ballot. Um, not the ballot, sign the return envelope prior to returning it without a signature or if your signature doesn't match, your ballot will not be counted. You you will be notified, but you will, and you will have five days to go in and correct that. But why take that chance and just sign your ballot on the front end, mail it in, and not have to worry about it?
0: And so when can we start seeing those ballots in our mailboxes?
8: July 21st is when they should be hitting home.
0: And you need them in the mail by?
8: They need to be received by August 8, 7 p.m., not postmarked, so we're recommending you mail it five days prior to allow for that transit time with the United States Postal Service.
0: Or, if you want to wait to the last minute, <laughs> you know, go I down them off
8: At a place of deposit, and a list of those places of deposit can be found at our website at elections.hawaii.gov. We do have enough volunteers, and we do have a bigger space this year for social distancing.
0: Is it down to the Capitol?
8: No, we'll be at the, actually at the convention center.
0: And how many volunteers do you normally get?
8: Normally, in a, a polling place model, we'll get 4,000 election day officials statewide. We're down to maybe 200 to 300 statewide.
0: So that's all you need? Yes. And how does that work as far as even like the poll observers? Is there equal n- number?
8: Yes. So we did send the letter off to the parties to allow them to make names and we took all the names that they submitted. Various shifts. As long as they filled the shift, we uh, accommodated them. I want to encourage voters to um, check their registration to make sure it's accurate i mean up to date so they can do that at our website at elections.hawaii.gov with a driver's license or a state id ballots are not affordable through the usps so it's important that you have the most current mailing address on file
0: that was state elections officer scott nago talking about what you need to know for the mail-in voting for the upcoming primary for links to find out more about the election process head to our website hawaiipublicradio.org
5: like who's in there, vote them out. election day is all about. The
0: biggest gun we've got is called the Ballad
6: Bucks. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community. Open Thursdays to Sundays with new evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. Tune into HPR1 Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents,
1: Blue Note Virtually Live. This week it's Ukulele Virtuoso Taimani performing her first full production concert since January. Backed by a revamped quartet, Taimani will showcase new songs and a fresh sound right here on HPR. And we'll hear an interview with Taimani as well. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune into HPR1 or listen on the HPR Mobile app.
0: Lucille Beats Suvon Lee covers education. The new school year is set to start in about two weeks, and there's a lot of hand wringing over it. That is our reality check today. Good morning, Suvon. Good morning, Catherine. So, now you were uh, tracking a legislative briefing yesterday.
3: Yes, there was a Senate special committee hearing uh, with the Department of Health and the Department of Education, and it was quite a long hearing, but um, a lot, of, um, a lot of fireworks, <laughs> I guess you could say, were flying during this, uh, during this session, during this briefing, about the DOE
0: school reopening framework when schools do come back um, on August 4th. And I understand that there were some calls to possibly push that date off.
3: Sure. So there were more vocal senators, I would say, at this briefing yesterday, one of whom was Senator Kurt Savella of Eva Beach, Um, him reflecting his constituents' concerns, that is, he was pushing the DOE superintendent, Christina Kishimoto, to consider delaying the start of school from August 4th to after Labor Day, Um, the the argument being that um, the community, his community, um, just isn't ready to go back to in-person instruction That teachers aren't adequately trained um, that there just aren't enough safeguards in place right now to welcome students back to campus i think what is important to note however is not all students will be returning to the physical classroom come august 4th it really depends on their individual school Um, there are 257 schools in hawaii however and some are bringing students back to campus so it really does depend school 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 to school but at this point, there is indeed plans to have um, some of the students back with their classmates in, in two weeks.
0: Yeah, so we would, I guess, technically be the first um, school system to to uh, to open our doors, so everybody's going to be watching to see what happens.
3: Sure. Hawaii is the 10th largest school district in the country with 179,000 public school students. So among the large school districts, that is over hundred. Over 100,000, Hawaii would be the first in the nation to bring back schools. That's because of its academic calendar. Now it also um, recessed schools earlier, back in mid May, uh, with the end of the school year. So we end earlier here. We open up a little bit earlier here as well. So Hawaii is going to be definitely um, one of those first school districts to reopen. And this is in the context of uh, a climate in which many of the school districts around the U.S. are announcing how they plan to bring students back to campus in the fall. Some of them, in fact, are choosing to go online only um, for for the fall, at least, um, including Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second largest school system in the country. But, of course, that area of Southern California, that area of the country has seen surging coronavirus cases. so it is really modified according to the environment
0: now I know folks were concerned about Kishimoto's uh, decision on the distancing three feet six feet uh, as far as you know keeping the distance for some students but uh, because the health department was there uh, I mean what you know th- their position on this uh, carried pretty much a lot of weight yeah huh? right um,
3: well, what was interesting is that I think this was The first hearing in which the DOE and DOH appeared in tandem before the Senate Special COVID Committee to um, discuss the reopening plan, the DOE has been operating with DOH guidance, and Sarah Park and Bruce Anderson, the two health officials who were in attendance yesterday, um, really backed the DOE's reopening plan, both of them asserting that it was important for schools, um, for some, some kids, especially the younger ones, to come back into the school environment because they need that socialization. Because these are the critical years to gain that development. Um, neither of them are making any bones about the fact that there are no uh, that there are no risks. I mean, this is there is no ideal solution here. Everyone knows that whether you keep kids at home, that's a problem for working parents. If you bring them back, teachers could be at risk. Students could be at risk. There was this concept of the Ohana bubble that was floated by Sarah Park, in which you keep younger kids with one teacher in a single classroom throughout the day. But that, of course, begs the question of when they return home, who are they interacting with? You know, what are they doing outside of the school? So, it it there's there's no ideal solution here. I think is the general takeaway. But the health officials did tell the uh, legislators yesterday that, in their opinion, you assume the risk. To present or to at least alleviate some of the um, hardship with with being home and not getting schooling I think everyone has an opinion about what is going to work best teachers have their opinion parents have their own opinion but it, it is certainly a uh, <laughs> an interesting time right now um, as we zoom towards August 4th
0: they just need to hear some assurance about the uh, health risks and so uh, that was good for families to to get that take uh, from DOH. But thanks so much, Suvonne. Sure, you're welcome. That was reporter Suvonne Lee with today's Reality Check. To read her story, visit civilbeat.org. <music> Our show on Hawaii quarantine with Attorney General Claire Connors, Deputy Chief John McCarthy and Angela Keene was a lively discussion yesterday. Listeners had more to say, and here's what we heard from our talkback line.
8: My is Steve from Kailua. There is a simple solution to increase quarantine compliance. That would be random spot checks by a small team. We know of two individuals who flew to the island last month with no intention of quarantining. One with a return ticket a week later to join a July 4th party in California before returning to the island this month. They had no intention of quarantining and explained that they had zero risk of being caught as long as they avoided hotels, didn't answer their phone went out, and didn't post on social media. If the authorities announced and committed to random in-person spot checks, those folks, and many like them, would deem it too risky to come. There's a simple solution that does not strain our police or other resources. Thank you. My name is Ernest Shee, I'm calling from Oahu. I just come back from Singapore, and they enforced quarantine very strongly by making a
1: phone call to each person on a daily basis and having them turn on their
8: cell phone video and show them where their location is and maybe send a GPS location. Thank you. Uh, bye-bye.
0: And thanks for the feedback. If you have a comment about any of our shows, you can call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at hawaiipublicradio.org. Even
4: when your
3: days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes
0: or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. This morning HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us to talk about what happens to a community of fragile families when it gets hit during this health and economic crisis. Good morning, Noe.
7: Good to talk with you, Catherine. It's been a great show today.
0: So you've been well, you know, uh, spending time out on the mm-hmm. west side.
7: Yeah, well I don't know how many of us you know even think about the west side when we wake up in the mornings and you know just realize how how different the climate is, how different the way of life is out there. And um, You know, even before the COVID pandemic hit, the west side of Oahu had a different kind of lifestyle going on. According to Aloha United Way uh, figures, 24% of people on that coast were in poverty before the pandemic, and that's more than twice the state average. Our state average is 11%. Before COVID, almost 40% of people on that Waianae coast were food insecure, um, according to Alicia Higa, and she's the director of health promotion and community wellness there at the YNI Coast Comprehensive Health Center and people call it the comp out there it's like the emphasis on comprehensive because they really do it all it's healthcare care services to housing employment counseling I mean what they do is fill in the gaps over there and it was cool because Alicia gave me an example Look, we all know that when the education department closed some of their meal distribution sites, um, we know when that happened. She says many keiki up in the valleys or with their families on the beach there on the Waianae Coast lost access. So she and her staff of six used their neighborhood contacts, other parts of the comp team pitched in to track down all the kids. And they've provided over 120,000 meals to keiki, Puna this way just by going into the valleys and beaches wherever they have to. She says, it really takes creativity, teamwork, will, and she says they also pray.
4: It still is a lot of work and there's still not enough food, there's still not enough resources, there's still not enough staff and people to be able to accommodate all the needs of our community right now. One of the things that our community struggles with is that, you know, I think a lot of the organizations in town, they're able to just focus on one piece of the problem. Whereas in Waianae, we're not close to all these other organizations and we really have to be the problem solvers and figure out how to piece things together because we're one organization having to do the the job and roles of what people in town. They're able to use many organizations to tackle those problems here out in Waianae, we have to kind of just figure it out and make things work because it's needed.
7: Yeah, I mean. You had Alicia Higa there, and that's kind of the Molokai attitude,
0: right? <laughs> right here on Oahu, a town feels kind of remote uh,
7: to people out there. Catherine.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, if folks don't go out there often, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't see them. You don't think about you know that community. I fortunately go out there uh, to swim, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. I I uh, I see one. I comp up there, and and it is a rock. It it really uh, anchors <laughs> it that community. Is. It is the major social service provider on that entire
7: coast. I mean, in the area of food alone, they distribute Hawaii Food Bank provisions uh, to about 5,000 people a month. And tomorrow, they've got 1,500 families signed up for a food giveaway. They're they're totally prepared for this because they've figured out that the sign-up before is the way that it's organized enough for kupuna and everybody to participate. You know, we would had those huge food donations at Aloha Stadium in central Oahu, but outlying communities said they need this. So last week out in Windward, a thousand families got their uh, additional food. But, um, you know, they had openings in their giveaway up until that day. Out in I, they were filled up within hours. They have a waiting list now for the meals that are going to be available tomorrow. It's, it, the need is really clear
0: okay well i'm sure there's going to be long lines of cars i'll have to make that note if i go out in that neighborhood there's going to be a traffic jam
7: yeah the the pickup is going to be at wayanai mall and lena Alakanana, director of community health services there at the comp says they ask all of the people they serve it's 2500 clients at least since this pandemic began they ask them what is your number one concern and they say food after that it's rent or mortgage and utilities And thanks to Aloha United Way funding, they've got this COVID-19 rent and utility assistance program. And Kanana says this is a lifeline.
4: I would say majority of what we are seeing is probably in the 30 to 50 age range. We're talking about people who have been in the workforce for 10, 15 years and are now like caught by surprise. They range from construction workers, dental hygienists, hairdressers, people in the tourism industry, in the airline industry, I mean, all walks of life.
7: These are our essential people. And this rent and utility assistance program is available statewide, by the way. Funds are available now. It's the CRUA, COVID-19 Rent and Utility Assistance Program. So it's distributed by county, so you can access that. The moratorium on evictions, by the way, has been extended to the end of August. But nobody is going to breathe easy because Kanana says now it's been three, four months. Employers could be forced to start dropping health coverage, and that's what they're looking at now. Now, Alicia Higa says the huge burgeoning of need in her community has been so tough to witness.
4: Through the food distributions, the first couple were really hard for us because we had a lot of people in that age group that Lena just described between 30 and 50 who were so embarrassed to have to come through a line for food they've never been in a situation where they couldn't provide for their families. And I get emotional thinking about it because we had grown men in our lines, just they felt like they needed to explain why they were there and their eyes were tearing and they were so embarrassed. But, you know, they had this uh, obligation to the family to make sure that they had food. And so they would get in line. And we do have other people in our community who are used to coming in and getting food. But for the most part, we're seeing a lot more families who have never been in this situation where they had to ask for food.
7: Why um, am I Coast Comprehensive Health Center? They double the value of their SNAP, you know, the food stamp resistance when you're buying local produce. Also, when you're buying eggs or local meat and all of that at their farmer's market. And that farmer's market is going to be happening tomorrow to Catherine okay. at YNI Mall.
0: All right. So uh, that's where folks uh, need to go uh, if they need a hand with food. But thanks so much, Noe. Sure. Thank you. We've been chatting with Noe Tanigawa. She's been checking up on the needs of the Waianae Coast. Find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked listeners to test their baseball trivia on a local athlete with a 13-year career in Major League Baseball. Waipahu High School graduate Jerome Williams pitched for a handful of teams and even spent some time playing outside of the United States. Known for his trademark Puka shell necklace and pink glove, Williams scored notable wins on his career against the likes of Hall of Fame pitching uh, aces Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. And throughout his major league career, Williams was a reliable addition to the pitching staffs of the Chicago Cubs, the Washington Nationals, the Philadelphia Phillies, and more. Yet it was with the team that drafted him into the majors in the first place where he saw a great deal of his early success. The San Francisco Giants selected Williams as the 39th overall selection of the 1999 draft, where he was helped in a number of his starting appearances by the batting prowess of legendary slugger Barry Bonds. And congratulations to uh, Hilson of Palolo. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
6: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool.
0: This weekend kicks off the Iron Butterfly Challenge, and if you've not heard about it, Legacy of Life is behind the virtual event. It lets you run, walk, or paddle in a virtual race over the next couple of days. It didn't start out to be a fundraiser, but was meant as a way to connect families helped by organ or tissue donors. Its memorial uh, ceremony, traditionally held in the spring, had to be canceled because of COVID-19. Here's Legacy of Life's Nancy Downs talking about it.
5: Usually it's held in April. So when it was, we were quarantined starting in March, we knew that we weren't going to be able to do that. At first we thought, well, we will probably be able to do it in August. But of course, as things happen, it doesn't look like we know exactly when COVID-19 is going to let up. So I um, had heard of virtual races, a few other organizations like Legacy of Life Way in Texas and Alabama had done um, virtual races. My own son lives in northern Washington, and he does virtual races, uh, virtual marathons, and he knew all about it as well. So I thought, I'm just going to give this a try. And it's been a wonderful journey for us because it has brought together all of participants from all over the world. Most of them are connected to organ donation in one way or another. We have many transplant recipients who are doing the Iron Butterfly Challenge as well as donor families that are working together. There's a donor family group on Maui that's calling themselves the Maui Butterfly Team for the Iron Butterfly Race. And There's about 20 of them, and obviously they're they're not going to run together, but they will be doing the challenge together, in spirit, in different ways. In one respect, somebody commented to me that he really liked the idea of the virtual race because it encouraged a connection between healthy living and taking care of yourself and organ donation. And I thought that was an interesting perspective as well. The platform that we're using is called Run Sign Up. The organizations that do what Legacy of Life Hawaii does in Texas and Alabama had told me that they couldn't say enough good things about Run Sign up. So I enlisted them. It's a great platform. And they also have the ability to give donations and do fundraising on their platform. And I was so surprised because I didn't turn on the fundraising piece at first. I was so surprised that we got so many donations in the first few days. So that was just gratifying to know people were not only registering, but even after they registered, they were giving donations as well. And there are those who can't, for whatever reason, participate in the race, and they were giving donations. So, right now, we have about 115 participants. And every morning, I get up and I check the stats, and every morning, we get a few more. They're, like I said, they're from uh, all over. Um, we have two uh, women from Germany who are doing the 5K their way. <laughs> And they don't even know each other. And they're connected through Alex O'Loughlin. He apparently has a fan club that is Alex O'Loughlin's fan club for organ donation.
0: Oh, wow, Mr. Five O.
5: I know. So they're big followers of Hawaii Five O. And they've been fans of Alex O'Loughlin for years, even before 5.0. He did a movie about organ donation. It was one of his first movies. And then someone set up a fan club at that time. And it's just, so it's been there for about 20 years. They're all over the world. So we have those fans as well as donor families and transplant recipients and racing enthusiasts from 26 states. 70% are from Hawaii.
0: So tell us about the time frame. What do uh, participants need to know? When can they do this? So
5: the, the race begins on July 18, and it ends on July 26. What that means is they can pick their own starting time because it's a virtual race. They register online. They choose their own starting line, whether it's a treadmill at the beach or somewhere in their neighborhood. 5K is 3.1 miles, so they can plot their race course on their computer using Google Maps or they can download a smartphone app such as Strava and track their distance automatically as they walk, run, or paddle. And some people have Garmin watches as well. They can do it
0: that way too. Can you talk about the need? Because what you folks do with your organization, COVID or not, there are families that are desperately waiting for a transplant.
5: There are more than 300 people in Hawaii right now who are waiting for a life-saving organ. And there are 110,000 people on the mainland waiting. So the need is great not only for, for organs, but also for things like cornea, for people who need eyesight. You know, and there is a great need for tissue especially cornea. There's also a great need for skin donation and bone. just different illnesses that people have. There is always a need for tissue. I think most people would be surprised at how much tissue is used today in surgery and even in dentistry. So
0: by being an organ, eye and tissue donor, you not only save lives, but you restore life as well. So if you want to help out with the cause, you can take part in this Iron Butterfly Challenge and do it your way.
5: And the most important thing, even if they are not able to take part in the challenge, the most important thing is we want to encourage everyone to register, either at the DMV when they are renewing their driver's license or their state ID, or if they want to go online and register They can register online just simply by putting in registerme.org, and that will take them to the Donate Life America National Registry where they can register as well.
0: That was Legacy of Life's Nancy Downs talking about the Iron Butterfly virtual event that begins this weekend. It's meant to draw attention to organ and tissue donation, a need that doesn't go away even in this health crisis. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we take you to Springdale, Arkansas, to visit KMRW, a radio station which is serving the growing Marshallese community there. You have an interesting story to share uh, like that one? Well, call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hoypublicradio.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Catherine Cruz. Uh, be back on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Thank you.